First Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three, says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith." For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You may be seated. Well, we've read the word uh, before us today. I want to take this moment just to pray with you one more time over God's word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, uh, thank you so much, Lord, for the glories of the things that we not only read about here, but that we have sung about in our hearts. And truly, Lord, it is that which deserves to be praised. You deserve to be praised for giving us such a glorious hope, for giving us the hope of heaven, especially in a world that is filled with so much despair and hopelessness. Lord, we know where our truth and where the truth of our hope resides. It resides in you. It resides in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, Lord, we just simply ask that you would magnify that hope to us by magnifying the glory of your Son. Lord, we pray your help in this time. Help us, Lord. Do away with distractions. Help us to focus all of our attention and all of our affection upon you and upon your word now, Lord. Give me a mouth to speak to speak your word with boldness, how I ought to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we've traveled through this whole passage of Scripture. We've looked at various aspects of what the hope of heaven is built upon. And if you remember, I used the word truth or true for every single aspect of that hope. We have a true hope. We have a true and living hope. We have a true salvation. We have all of these aspects that lead up to our hope. And so when we think about the hope of heaven, the assurance of that hope, we could lose sight of precisely what it is that we're supposed to focus on. I mean, we've gone through meticulous passage of Scripture after passage of Scripture, and we've done exegetical and expository work, and I've pointed out this aspect of the doctrine and that aspect of the doctrine. But thankfully for us, the Apostle Peter here focuses us, sent, he, he focuses on, on what is central, of what is, if we could say, of most importance, of greatest importance when it comes to what is our faith to be fixed on as we are hoping in God. And, of course, for Peter, it is nothing less than Jesus Christ, the one whom we love. If you would, this is Peter making the hope of heaven easy for us because we have to focus all of our energy on a person. 
If you want to know your hope, look to Christ. He is the personification of your hope. Flip over with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews just before 1 Peter there. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and what the author of Hebrews tells us is just that, that if we want to have our assurance and confidence firmly fixed on the object of our faith, we need to look upon Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witness surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I like the ESV there. The ESV's translation says, the founder of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's code for so that you won't lose hope, so that you will remain of good cheer, so that your hope will remain strong, your expectation will remain high as you look upon Jesus Christ. But here, Peter tells us that this looking, this fixing our eyes, is to fix your eyes on something unseen. And so you know that the eye metaphor is referring to a spiritual sight and not so much a physical sight. Oh, there is coming that day when our faith will become sight. And no longer will we need to believe that we will see Jesus, for we will see him. And the beatific vision will be open to us. And the curtain of eternity and the curtain of heaven will be rolled away. And we will see him face to face. And as the old hymn says, face to face, what will it be? How wondrous, how majestic, how glorious will it be? But when Christ is the object of our faith, we see the unseen. And so what I want to talk to you about is this, faith's action, what faith does. You know that it is because of our faith in Christ that we can endure our trials? It is because of our faith and trust and confidence in Christ that, as Jesus said, that we can overcome the world because he has overcome the world. We are promised trial. We're promised tribulation, translation. You're going to get sick. You're going to get old. You're going to have pain, aches and pains. You're going to become weary, depressed, discouraged, distressed. You're going to become overwhelmed. You're going to experience tragedy, sadness, grief. You're going to be overwhelmed by life's trials so that you'll be like the psalmist who says that these trials were like drowning him in an ocean where he could no longer reach the top to take a breath. You'll feel yourself at times subdued, submerged beneath the weight of your trials. But my friends, because we can fix our eyes on Jesus, we know that we have hope beyond the grave. See, Christian hope is all about hope beyond this world. If you don't have Christ, your hope is wrapped up in the things of this life, 
your possessions, your material possessions, your money, your finances, your family, your houses, your cars, your endeavors, your careers. You seek identity in those things, and you seek to, as Scripture says, you seek to hold on to those things, to treasure those things, but you lose your soul in the process because those things were never meant to give you ultimate hope, ultimate security, ultimate assurance. Jesus is our foundation of our assurance and of our hope. And because of him, we are heirs of the promise. Because of Jesus, we will inherit the earth. This earth that now brings us trials, one day will bring us nothing but pleasure, pleasures forevermore at the right hand of God. We will inherit that because of Christ. Because we are fellow heirs with him. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ by faith. Where, were it not for Christ, intercession for our lives, the power of God would fail to protect us. Peter talks about that earlier in the context, that we are being protected by the power of God by faith. Faith is what joins us together to the work of Christ. And part of the work of Christ is the intercession of Christ, that Christ is standing as an intercessor on your behalf, pleading and asking of the Father that he would protect you. His indestructible life places his indestructible force field around your life, protecting you and shielding you from final and ultimate destruction. But were it not for Christ's intercessory work, the power of God would fail because God's power uh, to, is, is rooted in that he is answering Christ's prayer. The power of God is to answer the intercession of Christ. That's why he has to ever live to make intercession. Were he to turn away his intercessory work, but for a moment, were he to neglect his priestly duties on your behalf, then the power of God would fail to protect you. But praise God that we have such a great high priest, a sympathetic high priest, an indestructible high priest, a high priest whose work is finished and done and set and irrevocable. This is who Christ is, and this is what it means to fix our faith, to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. But now, more about the character of true faith. Let's read again uh, Peter's verses here in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, because as I said, I want to point out various aspects of faith, various things, three things, in fact, about genuine faith, what it does, the different actions that it performs. Peter says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That's amazing. Number one then, genuine faith loves the unseen. Genuine faith loves the unseen. It has the ability to love what you cannot see, namely Jesus. You'll note that in the context, the fact that these disciples that Peter's writing to, they have an apparent disadvantage or two disadvantages. Number one, they hadn't seen him in the past. And number two, they do not see him in the present. And with this, you and I can relate. We've not seen Jesus. I haven't seen Jesus. 
People that say they've had an apparition or a miracle or a, a revelation of Jesus. They've seen Jesus in a tortilla chip or they've seen Jesus in the clouds or in a rainbow or they've seen Jesus in some, you know, bowl of cereal they were eating or something like that. It's probably just food poisoning. You become delusional. But, but we have not seen Jesus. I promise you, you have not seen Jesus. Because when you do see Jesus, that means that the second coming would have happened. And that he would have came already with fiery vengeance. That he would have came already with fire in his eyes, with a sword proceeding out of his mouth. That it would have came to judge the nations. That would he came to destroy his enemies, to deliver and rescue his people, to redeem and take up his people, to be with him forever. Trust me, you have not seen Jesus because we're still here. But really, it is no disadvantage that these people to whom Peter is writing have not seen Jesus. Surely there were many people who saw Jesus, saw the miracles, saw the public ministry of Christ, they heard him teach, they saw his compassion at work, and yet they crucified him. I mean, the blasphemy of the Spirit is all about people that have seen Jesus and have attributed to him certain things. Namely, that after seeing Jesus perform a miracle, like healing someone who was lame or raising someone who was dead, they saw the power of Jesus Christ right in front of them and they attributed that power to Satan. And they said, he does this by the power of the devil. Can you think of anything more diabolical than that? To see the, the Holy Spirit working through the Son of God, performing a miracle in your presence, and then turning around and saying that that was performed by the power of Satan. There could be nothing more diabolical Jesus says that that sin will not be forgiven neither in this age nor in the age to come. It is no certain sign of grace that you have seen the physical Jesus because believing is not based on seeing. We know that. Jesus taught this to his disciples. He taught them the advantage of faith to sight. You remember the episode with Thomas, right? popularly known as Doubting Thomas. Pop, uh, Jesus tells Thomas, he says, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believe. You see, there's a divine blessing for those who have not seen empirical, quote unquote, empirical proof for the historical Jesus, but yet believe in Jesus despite that, that lack of that type of evidence. See, we walk, according to the Apostle Paul, we walk by faith, not by sight. But as the book of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 11, that faith is the conviction of certainty. It is not fideism, and it's not that we believe something a priori, as if to say that our faith is based on a mindless allegiance to propositional truth or to religious fanaticism. No. It is the faith that God has given. It is an existential reality within the soul of man that, uh, that, that taps into the certainty of our faith, namely 
Christ and his saving work. This is precisely what scripture is all about. Scripture teaches us to trust in Christ. This is what faith looks like. To the degree that we are loving Christ, we can be said to be trusting Christ and vice versa. To the degree that we are trusting Christ, we ought to be loving Christ as well. We ought to be loving Christ as well. As a matter of fact, it was this issue of loving and trusting Christ that separated Jesus and his disciples from those that did not believe. Look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 42. There is a, that's a famous exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees going back and forth, claiming that Jesus had been born out of infidelity, essentially calling him a bastard that he was born out of an illegitimate marriage. And Jesus said, if God were your father, you would have loved me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he has sent me. And so there, Jesus is saying, if you truly have God as your father, then it must by necessity mean that you have loved his son. And consequently, we should also point out that it was Jesus who joined this idea of loving and believing. This is probably where Peter gets his theology, right? Right from Christ. And it goes on there in John chapter 8 and verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. Sorry, this is not politically correct, Jesus. Well, there is no such thing as politically correct Jesus. It's just Jesus, And politics have to get in line, file in after him. But listen, this is what he says. He says, and you want to do the desires of your father. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe. And I think that believe there is not just simply believing in the facts of the gospel, but I believe it is trusting in the facts of the gospel, entrusting yourself, abandoning yourself, and relying upon the truth of the gospel. Therefore, it is the lack of true faith that kept the self-righteous from fully trusting in Christ, and it is so today. If you trust in yourself, if you trust in your deeds, if you trust in your religion, if you trust in your upbringing, whatever, wherever and however that self-trust looks like, it will always keep you from total trust in Christ, and therefore, it will keep you from loving Christ. But the love of Christ is not shallow. The love of Christ is anything but shallow or superficial, In all biblical reality, the love of Christ is a sanctifying love. It is a salvific love. It is a love that assures our heart. It is a love that produces obedience. It is a love that is to be demonstrated among the brethren. It is a love that is covenantal, which means that you stand in relationship with God. The love of God does not just emerge in the day of Jesus as out of a vacuum somewhere. No, the love language of Scripture is always always rooted in the Old Testament concept of God's covenant love towards his people. And therefore, to love God 
or not love God means that you either stand in covenant relationship with God or you are out of covenant relationship with God and therefore the love of God really in reality, contrary to popular opinion, the love of God is the most controversial doctrine of all. Because the love of God is exclusive and it is distinguishing and it is discriminatory. Or Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse, tw- uh, verse 22, possibly the most politically incorrect statement in the Bible, says, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be anathema, accursed, cut off from God. And there, kurios is certainly leading back to Jesus. So what that verse is actually saying is anyone who does not love Jesus is cursed. Accursed. Therefore, the kind of love that Peter and that the New Testament envisions is the type of love that cannot stand in competition to anything else. We know this from, P- from Jesus himself where he says in Matthew chapter 10, so important, so relevant, so, so current, This is happening everywhere. This is so true. He tests our allegiance to him based on our love for him. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You see that? For Jesus' sake, in other words, to his advantage, for his glory, for his purpose. That's why you love him. That's why you, you, you cannot even begin to compare the love that you have for anybody else in this world to the love of Christ, because it is the love of Christ that compels us after all. And so... Genuine faith is capable of seeing and loving the unseen, loving Christ. And second of, second of all, it also, genuine faith, produces joy now and forever. Joy now and forever. Look back at verse 8 again. It says, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you don't see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice, present active indicative, meaning now and continually, You rejoice in him now with joy inexpressible, and then he says, full of glory. Oh, remarkable, remarkable statement. So not only is it opposite of superficial love that we're talking about here, the Christian love for Christ, a believer's love for the unseen Christ ought to be the most intensest of loves. Our love ought to be so intense for Christ Listen to the way the psalmist talks about the Lord. Psalm 118, verses 1 through 3. This is how you intensify your love for Christ. Not only do you say that you love Christ, but then tell him why you love him. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. He is my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge my shield, the horn of my salvation. A horn of salvation just basically means something that is strong. He is strong salvation. He is 
potent salvation for us. He is, the psalmist goes on, my stronghold. I will call on the name of the Lord, or I will call upon the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved. That's why you got to love God, because you're going to be saved, because He's your refuge, because He is your stronghold, He is your shield, He's your protector. As Abraham told the Lord, you are, or, or, or the Lord told Abraham, I am, Abraham, your great reward. I'm your treasure, in other words. That is why even now, in the context of our trials, true faith leads to, to having affections for Christ that, as Peter says here, are filled with glory. Oh, and I want you to examine your heart today and ask yourself, is this me? Do I understand the meaning of inexpressible joy for Christ? Do I understand the meaning of a, of a love and of a joy for Christ that is inexpressible, meaning it is without utterance, it is incapable of speaking? As a matter of fact, the word inexpressible is a compound word. Literally, it has the alpha privative in the, in the front, just like you, you, you see the word agnostic or atheist that alpha privative is a negation. So it basically sees, it says not to be able to do something, and then the word eklaleo just literally means to speak out of. And so he's saying not able to speak from is a way that you could say that. And in the way that it was used in ancient terms, it meant to publicly make something known, to publicize how you're feeling. If you have ever known the love of Christ so much, that it has left you speechless, then you know what I'm talking about. If you have not, then I wonder, have you ever really tasted and seen that the Lord is good? If Christ has never left you speechless, crippled, as it were, inebriated by his love, overcome, overwhelmed, undone, ruined by the love of Christ, then I wonder... Have you really, truly ever experienced the love of Christ? The love of the Son of God who gave himself for you, shed his blood for you, spilled his life out for you, drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf. Understanding your sin and the wickedness and the sin, the depth of your depravity, and then to know what anger and what terror that excites from God, and then to know Christ took it all for you. He stood in your place. He became your redeemer. He was your substitutionary atonement. He became the lamb that was slain for you. If that doesn't cause you to become emotional, I dare say you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have not, as Peter says in chapter 2, verse 3, you have not tasted and seen that the Lord is kind. This is what Tom Schreiner says about that verse in chapter 2. Verse 3, he says, believers should long for the Lord. Indeed, they should have tasted and experienced his kindness, longing to grow, to become, to grow spiritually and to come to taste the beauty of the Lord and experience his kindness and his goodness. Those who pursue God ardently have tasted his sweetness Christian growth for Peter is not a mere call to duty for an alien moralism, 
The desire to grow springs from an experience with the Lord's kindness, an experience that leaves believers desiring more. The reason I went with that quote, it's because it's just, it's just abundant desire, right? It just, it just it expressed exactly what I wanted to say. Tasting the Lord is good, leaving in a believer in a state of desiring more and more and more. The waves never stop coming. The waves of his love, the depth of his love. You read the Song of Solomon and tell me that that does not reflect Christian experience and your love to Christ. I think it does. I think it does. That might be the most controversial thing I'll say all day. That's my position. But remarkably, if we take heed to Peter's context and the words, Peter uses the metaphor of tasting in a certain context. This is good news for you. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Look at it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Look at it because it is not calling you to share in the mysticism of the apostles. It is not calling you to share in the visions and dreams that certain individuals had in the church. It is not calling you to share in the ascetic practice of certain pious people. Mysticism, quietism, contemplative spiritualism, that is not the effect. You grow, according to Peter here in the text, you grow according to the Word. Study in order to grow. Study in order to taste. Isn't that wonderful? I don't need to go try to have some experience somewhere and look for this reality. All I need to do is experience this. Open the Bible. Put your elbows on the desks and get to work. And I tell you what, if you spend yourself in Bible study, then you will come away refreshed and filled, and you will come away with an abundant joy, inexpressible, full of glory, and you will know a little bit about what Peter's talking about here. But sadly today in our society and in the church, predominantly, we have divorced those two things. We have separated mind and heart. We have separated passion and precision. We have separated theology and experience. Now, in order to give you what I think is right, a right balance, I want to call on an expert to help us out. And this is B.B. Warfield, an old little treatise that he did entitled The Religious Life of Theological Students. He wrote this little pamphlet for seminary students who were entering the seminary, giving them advice how to successfully enter the ministry and how to successfully balance and juggle the whole concept of intellect and intensity. How do they balance that? This is what B.B. Warfield said. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours of your books. What? He asks. Why should you turn from God when you turn from your books or turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? If learning and devotion are an are this antagonistic, then the intellectual life is in itself accursed. And there can be no question of a religious life of a student, even of theology. The mere fact that he is a student inhibits for him religion. 
That I am asked to speak to you on the religious life of students of theology proceeds on the recognition of the absurdity of such antithesis. You are students of theology. And just because you are students of theology, it must, it, excuse me, it is understood that you are religious men, especially religious men, to whom the cultivation of your religious life is a matter of the profoundest concern. Of such concern, you will wish above all things to be warned of the dangers that may assail your religious life and to be pointed to the means by which you can strengthen and enlarge it. In your case, there can be no either or. Either a student or a man of God, you must be both. That's right. That's how you approach theology. That's how you approach godliness. You approach godliness on your knees as you study. Uh, maybe, what, maybe to sum up what Warfield is saying here, we ought to study with our hearts open and pray with our Bibles open. You ever do that? Pray with your Bible open, helping your prayer, guiding your prayer, feeding your prayer, fueling your prayer with theological thoughts, not just a list of prayer needs, but of actual communion with God. It's because you need to open your Bible you need to let God talk to you while he, you're talking to him. And I don't know any sure way to do that than that. Lastly, therefore, not only does genuine faith see the unseen, not only, therefore, does genuine faith rejoice now and forever, but genuine faith also lives in anticipation. And I want to zero in our focus there on Peter's words when he says, that this joy of ours is inexpressible, and then he uses the term full of glory, full of glory. The reason why I say anticipation, it is actually eschatological. This is why. The same parallel use of the same exact word in the same grammar is found in Romans chapter 8. So turn there with me. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, a passage that many of you know. What Peter is saying here is that we are moving forward in our faith with the settled conviction of our glorification. That's what it is. The certainty, the confidence that we, the reality of our glorification. And this, this is why Paul and Peter here speak with one voice. They couldn't agree more. Romans 8.29, this is what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that we would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these who he called, he also justified. And these who he justified, he also glorified. That exact same tense is used there. Glorified. Past tense. Paul and Peter are speaking of your glorification and mine as, as if it has already happened. That is glorious. As far as Peter's concerned, you are already in heaven. You're already seated with him at the right hand of God because you're united to him. Oh, it all comes back to the doctrine of union with Christ. Because we are in union with Christ, our glorification is certain. You want to talk about assurance? This is what assurance looks like. 
Glorification could not be described any better than the way that Peter describes it in, back in Peter's passage there in verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The salvation of your souls is just a glorious way of speaking of the eternality, uh, the immortality of your salvation. That it is a salvation that's beyond the temporal. So he takes us from our temporal trials to our atemporal or our eternal reality in heaven where our souls will experience glorification. It could not be any better. We hope that amidst all of our life storms, we can save our souls. We hope that in the fact that we will not lose our inheritance, that we won't fall short of it, that's what we're hoping in. That's what the salvation of our souls is all about, hoping in the fact that we will not be, as Paul said, after preaching to others, that I myself would not be disqualified. We're hoping that Christ and our union with Christ will not fail us because he cannot fail. As one very eloquent rap theologian said, his promises are stronger than the concrete. That's right. Stronger than the concrete. Stronger than the foundation that this church is built on are the promises of Christ so that you can bank on it with certainty. You could trust it. Fling yourself to, the, to faith in Christ. Thrust yourself on the confidence of Jesus Christ. He cannot, will not, and, and has promised not to fail you. So glorious. This is why salvation, the salvation of our souls is described as faith finding an end. Faith reaching a climax. Faith finding its ultimate purpose and goal. When he says, the outcome of your faith is the salvation of your souls. When we stop to contemplate that everlasting truth that our souls will be saved, our trials certainly have purpose. For if our souls will be saved, then we can count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. If our souls are gonna be saved, then we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering as Paul encourages us to when he says rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. We can trust that our hope will not disappoint we can overcome the world by looking to the exalted state of Christ. We can run the race with endurance by fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is himself the author and the perfecter of our faith, all because our souls will be saved. The hope of heaven is presented to us in this opening section of Peter's letter on, and it ends on a strong note of assurance. Oh, I want you to experience the blessed gift of assurance to know, unlike all of the other religions of the world, to know that you know that you have eternal life. Now you're talking Bibline. Now you're talking what the Bible talks about. No doubting. No waving, no wavering, full assurance of hope. I know I want that. And as we've already looked at many times, that assurance has a means. There's a way to grow in your assurance. It's called obedience. It's called utilizing the means of grace that God has given us, that God has given his people through going to church. Let's get real practical here now. 
You miss two, three weeks of church, your soul feels it. Your spirit feels it. And God lets you know about it. You, you stop studying your Bible. I mean studying it. I'm not talking about just getting in your one chapter every day and saying, oh, I did my evangelical duty. I'm talking about going to the Bible like heaven and hell depend on it. I tell you, when you do it with that perspective, when you work out your salvation with fear and trembling, recognizing and realizing what is at stake, I promise you, you will walk away from God assured in a way that you never had before. You, you want to talk about an experience with God, you'll have an experience with God. You neglect the duty of prayer, and you will feel yourself estranged from God. Oh, folks, my next subject is going to be on prayer. And I pray that it will unleash in our church a form of prayer that is rooted and grounded in the Calvinist tradition, the Puritan tradition of laboring in prayer, wrestling with God in prayer, believing God in prayer, accomplishing things in prayer, growing in your sanctification in prayer, communing with God, being laid naked and open and bare before God who sees and knows everything. I hope that it will cause revival in our church. That's what we need on a daily basis. And so, Lord, let's pray. Lord, we need for you to teach us to pray, to take all of these heavenly truths that are in your word lofty and high and exalted and to bring them down into our heart, into our life, and into our soul. Lord, please teach us to pray. Help us not to be strangers. One of the biggest problems that the evangelical world faces today is that Christians don't know God. They don't know their God. They're not acquainted with Him because they don't spend time with Him. Lord, help us. Deliver us from this malady, from this disease of a godlessness, of a prayerlessness. And I confess, Lord, right now, my need for greater communion with God. And I say, oh God, teach me and teach us the meaning of communion with God. Thank you, Lord, for our hope. Thank you that we have a hope that is settled in heaven. Thank you that we have a hope that has been reserved for us in heaven. Thank you that our hope is unshakable, it is unwavering. Thank you that our hope is rooted and grounded in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, in the indestructible life of Christ, and that because he lives, we too will live. Father, we praise you for the work of your Son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.